Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us for our study today as we delve into the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, if you're new to this study with us, I would encourage you back up, start at the beginning of the book of John so that you see how the ideas build and how we got to where we are now. But if you just want to dive in with the eighth chapter alone, that's okay too. We'll welcome you anyway. But our goal is to really study God's Word, to see its context uh, in the moments that it was spoken or the, the audience to which it was written to, and to also look at what God has there for us today, because His Word still speaks, and we want to hear it. Now, if you're searching and saying, hey, I, I don't know about this whole God thing, but I've been told I should study the book of John as a place to start to see what it's all about, then I welcome you as well. And uh, it should be a wild journey. So welcome aboard. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word become flesh. That is Jesus the Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. Lord, thank you for saving us. For bringing us into freedom. And into your family. That we may have life and life eternal. Being set free from sin and death and the slavery to sin that we once lived in. Lord, we thank you that we can study your word, that we can hear your voice through it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, speaking to our hearts, challenging us, and calling us ever forward in you. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, as we begin to look at chapter eight, I need to back up just one verse because in the study on chapter seven, I didn't finish chapter seven. I skipped verse 53 and I did that on purpose. Let me explain why in a moment. Right now, looking at chapter eight or the end of seven and on into eight, we encounter a couple of challenges. Now, these are our textual challenges, not textural, it doesn't feel weird, but the text itself has some issues and we need to address those because part of our goal with grasping scripture is to be honest with the text, what it says, what it doesn't say, and its background. This is one of those points in scripture where there are some issues with the manuscripts. You see, the earliest Greek manuscripts we have, the Gospel of John, they do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, that's one particular account, the woman caught in adultery. You know, the whole Jesus writing in the sand and the accusers leaving. We'll cover that in just a moment. That whole episode isn't in the earliest manuscripts, and it's one of those ones that kind of floats around in some of the manuscripts that we do have it in. But... It is included in our English translations of Scripture and most other language translations. The reason being, it seems to be authentic to the life of Jesus. Now, it seems that John probably didn't write that story at this point in his gospel. It got added somewhere along the way, pretty early on along the way, but still added in. Um, so that's a little bit of an issue but it does seem to be authentic to the life of Jesus. So it's not like, wow, this is teaching weird stuff and it doesn't belong in there. It's more like if, if any reason it weren't to belong in there, it'd be because it may not have been penned by John's hand. But even the early church seemed to see some value in it. Now, when I talk manuscripts, you know, uh, I realize there are people out there that may not grasp the background there. The text that we use to translate most of our modern English translations, and I say modern English, I'm not referring to King James or New King James, but I'm referring to RSV, NASB, uh, ESV, NIV, NLT, 
pick um, other combinations of letters to throw together. That's a joke. Um, you know, all these modern translations tend to rely on the Nestle Alon text. They're, they're Greek manuscript text, and, and the source material for those texts goes back to about 125 AD. And we go, one, that's 125 years after Jesus. Well, actually, Jesus died probably in about 30 AD. But the point is, the last part of the New Testament was written in 90 AD, roughly. And that is the book of Revelation. It's the latest written book. And it was written by, oh, hey, wait a minute, John, the author of the Gospel of John. Years after the Gospel of John was written, but still, it's the last book of the New Testament written. And if you consider between 90 AD and the writing of Revelation, and at that point, what we consider the New Testament was letters and manuscripts being passed around among the early church. Those are starting to be brought together and seen as authoritative text, as God speaking through the apostles. Those are being compiled together and used as a body of work. And then by 125, some, what, 35 years later, we actually see that coming together. It was around that time period that you have the Marconian canon, that is the first real collection that we've got record of, of the early text of the New Testament, and it's pretty much the New Testament we have now. Now, the older English translations, like King James, come from what we call the received text. These are the texts that were passed down through medieval Europe, were you know, uh, recopied by scribes in the monasteries, so on and so forth. Uh, there are some variations there. There are some editorial comments that work their way into the text through the different manuscript copying processes and, and so on and so forth. When I talk about the earliest manuscripts, I'm talking about those ones that our Greek text is based on. Um, but we also have that body of work, the received texts. God guided their transmission through history as well. In fact, then in the, what, 1800s led us to those other Greek texts that date back to about 125. All of that being brought together makes up this realm of biblical scholarship where we look at things and we can say, okay, what is authentically the Word of God here? I would say this floating passage, this uh, 753 through 811, is still the authentic Word of God. God led to it being in there. It is not contrary in its teaching or nature to anything else in Scripture. It fits. It seems to be an account from the life of Jesus. So I really don't have a problem with it. Um, You know, maybe you do. And if you do, then fine. You're welcome to rejoin us as we get to the discussion of verse 12 and following. But, um, you know, this passage can become problematic for some folks. And I want to be honest about that. And it's history, but it does seem to be the inspired word of God and included in the text. So we're going to take it as it is. Now, I said there were a couple problems with this chapter. That's the first one. The second one may actually be a bigger problem for some folks. You see, the latter part of this chapter, Jesus makes some pretty bold claims about himself that are exclusive claims about who he is. He also challenges the Jewish leaders who love to boldly claim that they are the descendants of Abraham, and he challenges that. And for both Jews and for Christians of the type of vein that uh, believe in the national salvation of Israel because it is Israel, um, this can be a challenging passage. Because Jesus makes it clear, it is not that you are a blood descendant of Abraham that makes you part of God's chosen people, that makes you his. It is your spiritual descendancy. Are you a spiritual child of Abraham? And he kind of explains, no, he kind of, he flat out says what that means. 
Um, it's, it's about relationship to Christ. It's about loving Christ because you know his father and love his father. His father is in you. Therefore, you love Christ. So um, some pretty bold things here. We're going to dig into them, unpack them a little bit, as I like to say. All right. You ready for the text? We're going to get there. We're going to start in 7, verse 53, and take up from there. Now, you'll recall Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was at the temple. This is the uh, the Feast of Shelters. There had been the, the offering of the water poured out, and he had talked about himself being living water. Now it says in verse 53, then the meeting broke up and everyone went home. Then we get to eight. So he's still there. Same events. We've just moved on. Everybody went home. Now, say, next day. Jesus returned, verse 1, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, let's be blunt here. This is a trap. This is intended to be a trap for Jesus. There's several things going on. One, Rome was the only entity that allowed capital punishment, and it had to be carried out by Rome. You know, the Jews, Jewish law may have said she should have been stoned for being caught in adultery. The Romans said, you don't have the right to execute, only we do, so you better not do that. So if Jesus says stoner, he's going against Rome. He's also not uh, being consistent with the compassion that he has shown for those suffering under their choices of sin that we've seen through his ministry. He's not condoning of sin, but he has compassion for those in suffering. Now, that's one thing that's going on. The other thing is they've set up this framework to where he has to decide whether he's going to side with the law of Moses and stand against Rome and, and not be compassionate towards this woman, or is he going to negate the law of Moses? And if so, they've got him. Actually, either way, they're thinking, we've got him. And they're wrong. Now, there's some other things going on here we need to pay attention to and make note of. It was not a fair setup. This woman caught in adultery. The The phrasing there is rather specific in the Greek, and it is that she was caught in the act of adultery. She would have been engaged or married, and she would have been caught um, carrying out the act of adultery with a male partner. And the law of Moses actually stipulated both of them were to be brought to trial and, if found guilty, stoned to death. Uh, the guy is conspicuously absent from this. They just brought her. And they parade her in front of everybody. It says they put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4, teacher, they said that Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, there have probably been forests worth of trees that have died for the sake of people trying to explain what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Let me clear up the mystery for you right now. We don't know. That's it. We have no idea. He may have just been doodling, drawing pictures. I don't know. It doesn't say. No manuscript says. Now, people have speculated that he was writing the sins of those gathered there, or maybe that he was just rewriting the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses or, you know, he may have just been doodling, killing time. I don't know. And neither does anyone else. Jesus knows the ones that were there know. The Bible tells us everything we need to know. Doesn't necessarily tell us everything we 
want to know. In fact, that's not true. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Only everything we need. They were trying to trap him and saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. So they're badgering, give us an answer, give us this. fine. Stands up, gives them an answer, goes back to doodling in the dirt. They don't like his answer. His answer is all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So he hits them with a condition. Now, is he saying that only those who have never sinned have the right to to judge in an earthly capacity to carry out judgment and, and carry out the law? No, that's not actually what he's saying. But what he is doing is challenging the condition of their hearts and their motivation in these moments. And each one of them, when they are forced to examine the motivations of their hearts, it has an impact. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I've always found that interesting. Beginning with the oldest. Why? More accumulated baggage? Well, the older I get, I'm thinking, possibly. And maybe more wisdom, more perspective as well. But whatever the case, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Hmm. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, first time he's addressed her, stood up and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, there is some significance. Well, there's significance to everything Jesus says. But I have heard this quoted to me in different contexts and applied in different ways. And I'm fascinated by how often people like to stop before they get to the last sentence. Where are your accusers? Did any of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Neither do I. Oh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn us. Uh, back it up. She was caught in sin. She was guilty. She has been mired in sin. Now, her accusers may have cleared out. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to accuse you either. But then he gives her a challenge because it isn't just about not being accused. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 3? He didn't come in the world to condemn the world because the world stood condemned already but he came to save? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. There is a call to repentance and changed life after encountering Jesus. If you want the neither do I condemn you, you need to have the changed life of a repentant life that has turned and is following God, that goes and sins no more. We can't ignore that part. Jesus acknowledged her sinfulness and her need to turn from that sin and called her out on it. So don't misread that section of scripture and think, oh, free license to sin. Jesus doesn't hold anything against us. Well, he calls us to repent and live obedient to him. In fact, we're about to get into that big time in the rest of the chapter. Read the text. Get comfortable with the text. Because it's God's word and we need to hear it. Now, as we pick up in 12, um, we're back into the main gist of the text. The the earlier manuscripts, you know, uh, carry on here after 7. And to set the context, still the the Feast of Shelters, but what's going on in the temple at this point 
is it was a, a ceremony and a time during this festival where they filled 16 bowls with oil and set them alight there in this area of the temple. And that light had significance. And it was under that that Jesus stood as part of this festival that was to point to God, to point to the glory of God, the grace of God, the deliverance of God for the nation of Israel. And he stood there. And we get to verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more, and he said, mind you, under all these lights burning in the temple, I am the light of the world. Did you catch it? I am. Mm -hmm. He's making a God claim here again. He said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. That kind of echoes what John said back in chapter one, isn't it? Yeah. So here Jesus is proclaiming that he is the light of the world, that it is following him. That means you won't have to walk in darkness and that you will have the light that leads to life. In verse 13, the Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. They're saying, you know, it, it, Jewish law it takes two witnesses for something to be true. You make those claims about yourself. That's one witness that you know, doesn't count. It doesn't mean anything. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards. But I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect, because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. So he just kind of pulled out a trump card on him and went, hey, you want two witnesses for it to be fact? You say it doesn't count because I say it. God's got my back on this. God has shown through the miracles, through the signs, through the wonders that I am who I claim I am, that he has sent me. They don't get it. That's evidenced by their response. In verse 19, they say, where is your father? They ask. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, there it is again, I am, um, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Now, to understand where the section of the temple known as the treasury was, you need to understand a little bit about the temple. There were parts of the temple that were open to everyone, and there were other parts that weren't open to everyone. The treasury, what was considered the treasury, was actually in the court of women. Now, that wasn't the, the outer court, the court where the Gentiles could be. It was the first court that was limited to the Jewish people. So everyone Jesus is speaking to through this account is Jewish. They had to be to get to that part of the temple. But being in the court of women, it wasn't exclusively for women. Just the women couldn't go past that into the inner court, the court of Israel. This was a court where men and women could gather and worship God together. That's where Jesus did most of his teaching, teaching both the men and women of Israel. And that is where he is teaching now, where he is saying these things, where these claims are being made. So all of that is relevant in that place that is pointed out that he's in the temple, the part of the temple known as the treasury. He's speaking to the, the whole crowd, to everyone, not just one select group, but he is speaking to the Jewish people specifically. So that's how we round out verse 20. Now, there's already some question of belief here. They don't understand who Jesus is, and there's a whole lot of them not understanding what Jesus is saying or misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. And 
partially that's because they don't have the right frame of reference. They don't know God. Therefore, they can't understand Jesus. And as much as we may not like that idea, it's still the truth. If you don't know God, then Jesus isn't going to make sense. For the Jewish people, they could claim a nationalistic identity, an ethnic identity. But apart from knowing God, they weren't really what they were claiming to be. We'll get to that. Now in verse 21, it says later, so this would have been like later that day. Later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people ask, is, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean? You can't come where I'm going. Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. I am from above. Um, you belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, and that's very definite, a God statement there. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. So there's only two options there. You die in your sins or you live. The only way to life, the only way to not die in your sins is to believe that Jesus is God. To believe that he is who he claims to be. They don't get it. Verse 25, who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, that's his favorite term for himself used throughout scripture, uh, throughout the New Testament. When Jesus was speaking, he referred to himself over and over again as the son of man. It's a reference from Daniel for the Messiah. When you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he, or literally that I am. This is then you will understand I'm God. He goes on, I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. So some of the people gathered there, remember, they're still in the temple. There's still a group of, of Jewish people listening to him as the leaders, the teachers of the law and whatnot are challenging him. A bunch of them don't get it. But at this point, some of them start to get it. Some of them who have been seeking after God and worshiping God are hearing Jesus and going, wait a minute. Understand the craziness of what he is saying in verse 28 from an earthly perspective. This is before the crucifixion. When you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, they're going, wait, Roman execution instrument, okay, uh, weird. Then you will understand I am he. I do nothing on my own but say only what the Father has taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. See, at that point, many who were there started to believe in him, started to go, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. And things begin to change. Now, those many who believe, they're going to have challenges to that belief. And those challenges are going to come quickly. But they've begun to understand. In verse 31, continuing the conversation, Jesus says to the people who believed in him, 
All right. So many came to believe. He says to them, he's addressing them now. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But you see, we can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus and not follow his teachings, because to be a disciple means to be a follower. And he's challenging them. Oh, you've come to believe. That's great. Let's test it. If you're truly my disciples, if you're truly my followers, then you will remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This isn't a, well, if you don't, if you don't do all the right stuff, then you don't earn yourself. No, it's not about that. It's about placing your faith in Christ, your belief in Christ and living for him, centering your world on Jesus. And if you don't do that, then you don't really believe. Oh, I believe he's the son of God and he died for my sins and he ransomed my soul and, and I owe him everything and I'm not going to live like that. Well, that last statement kind of negates everything before that, right? Jesus is describing, he is laying out the definition of what it is to be a faithful disciple and a faithful disciple of Jesus remains faithful to his teachings. If we do that, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The reality is the truth is the person of Jesus Christ. The truth of God will set us free. Goes on in verse 33. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone, because he's talking about freedom. And they're going, okay, freedom, freedom from slavery. Remember the festival of shelters about the the uh, Egyptians. No, the Israelites wandering in the Sinai desert and and being delivered from slavery. That's what this whole festival is about. That's where their head is at this point. And they're going, but wait, we're descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Now, he has just divided the audience. There are those that believed, and, and they want to hear this, and they want to know what it is to follow Jesus. And then there are the others that are gathered there, particularly the teachers of law and the Pharisee, although some of them came to faith in Christ. But the bulk of them are sitting there going, ah, you know, and they're the ones he's talking about that are trying in their hearts to kill him. They're trying to kill him because there's no room in their hearts for his message. He says, I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father but you were following the advice of your father. Now here's their response, a very pious response, but here it is. Verse 34, our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. Those are fighting words. Those would have set them off big time. When they started by, you know, there's an exclamation point there. They were yelling at him. Our father's Abraham. And Jesus confronts him and goes, no. If you were really the children of Abraham, ooh, calling into question the religious leaders of the Jewish community about them actually being children of Abraham, they would they 
they thrived on their genealogies. They could tell you not, you know, they, they could follow it all the way back to Abraham through which son and, and which marriage and, and everything else all the way back. This was a huge deal. And Jesus just turned it on its ear. And they don't get it. They get upset, but they don't understand what he's saying. It says they replied, the second half of 41, he said, no, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. Now, I understand that the, the phrasing in Greek there is, there's more implied than just we aren't illegitimate children. It's the we as opposed to you aren't illegitimate children. There's the implication there as they're animately disagreeing with him that we're not the illegitimate ones you are. So they're kind of throwing an accusation at him. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Hmm. Verse 42, Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Ouch! Did you catch that? They went from saying our father's Abraham to saying we're legitimate children. God himself is our true father. And Jesus just takes that and completely turns it around and says, oh, well, if that's the case, here's the reality. But that doesn't describe you. So your real father is the devil and you are being consistent with his nature and character instead of consistent with the nature and character of God who you claim to be children of. You're liars. You're murderers. Just as the devil was and is and has been from the beginning. I mean, he is calling them out big time here. But let me be clear, he is not talking about their genealogies. He's not talking about their family lineages in a physical sense. He is talking about their spiritual lineage. Are they the children of Abraham in that they acknowledge and worship God and know him? Or are they the children of Satan because that's who they follow. They live their lives as disciples of Satan. Hmm. Wow. I, I keep saying that. Wow. Can you imagine being one of the Pharisees? Comfortable in your knowledge? Comfortable in your position? comfortable in your influence and reputation. And then you hear this. Hmm. Again. Wow. Now in verse 49, he goes on. Actually, let me back up 48. That's where we are. Because he's just told them. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. To understand what they're saying there. He's accused them of being children of Satan, spiritually. 
So they lob it back at him, calling him a devil, but not just a devil. They decide they're going to throw in a racial slur. Uh, yeah, you Samaritan devil. Because remember, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. I mean, they prayed to God thanking them that they weren't that they were born a Jew and that they weren't born a dog or a Samaritan, because apparently a Samaritan was somewhere down the line from a dog. I mean, they despise. So this is this is they're 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 going low here. The people retorted, You Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? Yeah, like when he was healing people and feeding 5,000, yeah, they were just going, demon, demon, no. But when they disagreed with him, when they didn't like what he did, yeah, they were they were accusing him of, of having a demon. Verse 49, no, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my father and you dishonor me. Implication there being, if having a demon in you means you dishonor the father, then... Um, Maybe you guys. Verse 50. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. You see, the test of our obedience to Christ, the test of our belief in Christ is our obedience to his teaching. We don't get the never die part without the obedience part, because the obedience part belies the condition of our heart. If you do not obey Jesus, then don't think that everything's okay. Don't think you have the promise of heaven. You are deceiving yourself. Now, Jesus makes similar comments to this through the rest of the Gospel of John. And then John harps on these comments some more over in his letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Why? Because this is a hugely important thing. Your name may be on a church roll somewhere because you uh, made a decision at vacation Bible school or at camp or during a revival service at a church or whatever the case may be. And you went through the process to be acknowledged and become a member of that church. But if your heart does not belong to him, if you don't believe in Jesus in such a way that it reshapes your life, that you live in obedience to his teaching, and I'm not saying you never sin, but I'm saying the drive of your life is to obey and follow Christ. If that's not true for you, if you can say, oh yeah, I was saved when I was fill in the blank on age. For me, it was uh, late, uh, somewhere between seven and turning eight, right along that cusp there. You may look back and go, yeah, I was saved at that point. But now you live like Jesus has no influence on your life. Then you really need to go back and revisit the idea of what happened back then. And it may be there's just a whole lot you need to repent of. And you need to drive that proverbial stake in the ground right now. And say from this point forward, I'm going to live for Jesus. Don't play around with it. If you get to the end of your life and you can look back and there's no evidence that you followed Jesus, then it probably means you don't know him. And the end of your life is not where you want to figure out that you don't know Jesus. His is the free gift of salvation. And it will cost you everything. Because you have to surrender to him. Live for him. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teachings will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teachings will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I want to glorify myself, it doesn't count. 
but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say, He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I say, if I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know Him and obey Him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Abraham had a vision. Abraham had had that inclination that God had made the promise that the Messiah would come, that there would be an atoning for sin, and that God would make his creation right with himself, forgiving sin. That's what Abraham looked forward to. To the coming of Christ. He saw it and was glad. Verse 57, the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? I love that, the way they say 50, like it's ancient. I'm now past 50, so I'm like, wow. You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. What Jesus said was not about his physical age. He was saying, look, before Abraham was even born, I existed, I am. In fact, I am God. That is very much one of those I am statements where he's claiming the name of God. Verse 59. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. Here we go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're picking up stones. What is going on? When he said, I tell you the truth before Abraham was even born, I am. He said it in such a way they finally understood all those I am statements he's been saying. They understood that he was claiming to be God. And if someone claims to be God and is not God, it's blasphemy. And Jewish law dictated that they were to stone him to death. There's only one problem. If you claim to be God and you're not God, that's the penalty. Jesus was claiming to be God and is God. Let me finish 59. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. That's yet again part of how we know he is God. It wasn't his time. And God miraculously saw him out of the temple without harm. Now, there's a lot in there. And we're beginning to see John emphasizing this call to obedience to Christ. Now, backing up to the framework of the Gospel of John, that he was writing against this proto-Gnostic heresy, that he was presenting his Gospel more in a, uh, a theological framework than a chronological framework to get his point across. He is tying these series of events, these teachings in Jerusalem, with activities going on in the temple with festivals and the rituals associated. I am the water from the last chapter dealing with a part of the festivals that involve water. Now we've got these burning uh, oil basins in the temple, bringing all this light and it's part of this festival. And he is saying now I am the light of the world. He's making it clear that God and himself are witnesses to who he is. And therefore, it is true, it is fact, because it is borne out by two witnesses as Jewish law. He is declaring himself to be what Abraham was looking for, uh, looking forward to and having joy in, was glad about. And he's calling them out, saying there's a dividing line, and that dividing line isn't your genealogical heritage. That dividing line is, do you know God? And if you know God, then you will acknowledge Christ. And in Christ, you will be free, free from sin, free from the slavery to sin. You will be set free. You will have salvation and you will live obedient to Christ. 
And if you don't know him, if you don't acknowledge Christ, it means you don't know God. And if you don't obey Christ, it means you will not have eternal life. And he lays out all these um, dichotomies or all these opposing viewpoints saying it's this or this. It's this as a characteristic or it's this. You don't get to claim this one, but do this one. Now that's a challenge for us as believers. Our life, our commitment to Christ has to bear itself out in how we live. If we claim to know him and believe in him and trust in him for salvation, then we have no choice. We must obey him with our lives. And if we don't acknowledge him, then we don't know God. You may say, Scott, I don't see why you're harping on that point. Think of all the groups in our modern world that don't acknowledge Christ, but claim to know God. I'm not saying this. Jesus set the dividing line. You cannot claim to know God and not know Jesus, not acknowledge Jesus. Go back and read chapter 8. There is only one way to salvation, and it is through Jesus the Christ. As the book of Hebrews says, feel free to visit the podcast on Hebrews. Um, As the book of Hebrews makes it clear, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus the Christ. You need Jesus. If you don't have Jesus in your life, you need Jesus in your life. He is the one way of salvation. And he offers it to you. Will you take hold of it? Will you live for him? That's the decision you must make. Again, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for Jesus, for your word in the flesh, for the truth that sets us free, free from our sin, free from that penalty of death. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, redeeming us from our sins, and that you no longer call us merely a creation, but in Christ You call us your children. We thank you, God, that you have invited us into that relationship with you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.